Hello. Ah, now that I've got your attention, I'd like a quick word about how Cambridge 105 Radio is funded. Our job is to give a voice to those groups who may not otherwise be heard. That may be our support for local music or the charity of the month. You're wanting to know how you can help, aren't you? Well, you can support our advertisers, and when you use their services, say you heard about them on Cambridge 105 Radio, and you can make a donation. It all goes towards our upkeep. We're eco-friendly, but we do have a bit of an electricity bill. Visit cambridge105.co.uk and click on the donate button. And thank you for listening across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to Arts Roundup, which this month discovers some new and interesting things going on in Cambridge's art dimension, ranging from the world of top-notch political cartoonery to a new all-encompassing arts festival and even a spot of homegrown music in a historic Cambridge setting. In this edition, art conservator Penny Heath takes us through the new gallery space at Kettle's Yard as a team works feverishly to unpack the boxes and crates and make all things right and ready for its grand reopening next week. Political cartoonist Andy Davey talks about a dying and sometimes dangerous art that still has its place in the national psyche. Andrea Cockerton from Choir We Are Sound gives us some insight on singing in the city and her plans for a new Cambridge summer arts festival she's founded. And Italian bright spark Alexandra Cagliano previews this year's Illuminate Cambridge Festival and talks about what happens behind the scenes with digital marketing expert Sukio. Kettle's Yard Gallery has had a breathtaking revamp which has taken two years to complete and has practically broken the bank, but as I found out the project, which had its doubters at first, is now an entirely different matter now that it's complete. The gallery building, designed by architect Jamie Fobart, now allows for a variety of artists, teachers and experts to really stretch out impressively. It also features an education wing that takes you by surprise with a wow. As you enter, it drops down some 25 feet below a balcony and walkway and stairs into a large and spacious modern creative space featuring a muck-proof floor for messy creativity, space for up to 50 people, a state-of-the-art smart screen, a disabled lift and other swish facilities. An opening exhibition will feature 38 artists' work, 31 of them living. Just one example to whet your appetite is French-Tunisian artist El Saïd, who's coming to Cambridge to paint on the side of a building in Arbury Court. He specialises in large-scale documentary art projects on the sides of buildings in Cairo. Art conservator Penny Heath took some time out to show me the venue. But how important has the Friends of Kettle's Yard been to this whole project? Because they are the Kettle's Yard community, aren't they? Very much so. Um, I think the Friends have been enormously important. I mean, we've existed for 20 years, um, this very loyal band of people who love the place for what it is. And we've watched this fairly dramatic transformation, but we've been behind it all the time. And we've actually given quite a lot of financial support, but also the whole morale um, of, of keeping... Well, it's a big risk taking, taking down a, an old gallery and building a, a new space. And, and you know, we're really excited and feel... Penny, tell me a little bit about yourself because um, you're going to be, uh, well, you've been arranging the launch um, party, but how did you come to be um, so involved in Kettle's Yard? Uh, well, I should say one of the launch parties, but now I am um, partially involved in uh, the reopening of the, for the Friends, in particular, their own Friends party on, um, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, my own involvement, I'm, I feel really privileged to be part of this community. Uh, I came back to Cambridge about 20 years ago, and my, my background is in the art world, I'm actually. Conservator by training, and uh, they were wanting volunteers on the committee of the Friends, and um, I've just been part of that that organisation, um, and uh, it's it's the most delightful group of people in the arts and community in, in Cambridge. Now, I'm looking at from the outside of the gallery, there are some fantastic children's posters on the outside, the, the, the frontage has all been redone, but what are people going to discover once they get inside to the new Kettle's Yard? Oh, well, well, I think one of the main, main things is, uh, two things, one, one is to reassure people that the old Kettle's Yard, the house, as they knew it before, is still there, and I think the friends are particularly protective about that, that whole you know, extraordinary spirit and identity of Kettle's Yard. But uh, when you walk in the new door, you are going to be wowed by the most incredible new spaces. Two fantastic galleries. Uh, there's a new shop, there's a cafe. There's also an Amab's new um, education room. And actually, there's going to be um, small study rooms like we're sitting in at the moment, sort of archive research spaces, 
So it's really something for everyone. Um, the gallery space seems to be um, greatly extended. Um, lots of um, uh, imaginative use of the space that was there before. But I think the great thing about, from what I saw visually from um, the new Yard, is it's still in keeping, although it's all modern, um, with the rest of Jimmy's house and that Jimmy'd feeling to the whole place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a very tight site, a very difficult site, and it's a very historically important site. And the architect, Jamie Fober, has been, I think, brilliant at sort of understanding you know, its spatial volumes and actually creating new space out of what seems to be nothing. I mean, there was one little extra building. They bought the adjoining building, which is a narrow you know, three-storey building. But out of it, they've created these incredible volumes inside. Um, Jamie Fober obviously had a big job here. Um, are there some particular architectural features that make it special? Because the house is a very special thing. It's a treasure of Cambridge, isn't it? it is. And it has so many different levels to walk around and so many artworks. Um, what did he put in that was particularly interesting? Because every architect likes to leave his imprint on something, doesn't he? Um, um, Absolutely. Interesting to talk about levels. I think one of the sort of untold things about Kettle's Yard um, is that Jim Ead and architects after him actually liked all these different levels. Apparently there are 22 sets of stairs going up and down, so you're always moving, you're always coming at things at a new angle. And Jamie's, I think, created that, that rather mysterious voids, corners, steps... Um, it's a very it's an exciting new building to be in. Now, um, in the basement, you've got the educational wing, um, which is basically you couldn't go in any other direction than down, could you, really? Um, and you've yeah, gone down, yeah, you've now yeah. got that bigger space. Is that going to be somewhere that's going to be really important for children now? Um, because um, in the past, they ran things like MAD and all these drawing festivals and things like that, and I can see the yeah. drawings outside. That's going to be a place that's going to attract a lot of children, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, again, you know, the, the room before, the education room, was a, was a small room, no windows, and um, they had real sort of capacity problems because the you know, classes are quite big. Um, so they, so they had to dig down, and uh, I think so many education spaces and galleries you know, all around England they tend to be in the basement, you know, no windows. And this is the most brilliant um, I know, intervention that it's actually got natural light, um, sort of it's half street level, uh, wonderful spaces, and there's going to be workshops for you know, teenagers, children, adults. All abilities um, accessible to all age. Um, so, yeah, it's extraordinary. Has the, um, you know, the refurbishment of um, um, Kettle's Yard um, basically broken the bank for the time being? That's another thing I want to uh, ask. I think it has. It's been a huge capital project. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's on time, on budget. Uh, but yes, um, it's, 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 this is a sort of once in 50 year regeneration project as well. As well uh, now, I gather at the, um, on display are going to be some important um, artworks um, for the, the reopening of Kettle's Yard. Can you tell me a bit about those? Because we've got um, Jeremy Della's paintings called Nelia Parker and also Richard Long. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is a real licorice all sorts of, of, um, of, of art. And there's, there's a lot of, sort of uh, the 20th century classicals, there's Nan Garbo and, and Ben Nicholson, and then some of the artists you've just met sort of cutting edge. And then I have to admit, a lot of people who I don't know about. And I think really exciting. Art's got to keep reinventing itself, it's got to be new, it's going to be quite challenging, political, activist, international art. Um, and I think there's some fantastic surprises uh, to be seen in, in the churchyard and, and, and outside, as well as installations inside. Uh, what's going to happen with all of the links with other arts organisations now? Is that going to change at all? Because Andrew Nome was very enthusiastic about that when you first came. Yeah. In, so, um, yeah. I think it can only grow. I mean, more consolidation, more collaboration. I mean, Cambridge, there's a lot of colleges which have you know, beautiful, quiet galleries and spaces. I'm thinking of the Hayong and... Um, yeah, obviously the Fitzwilliam people know but actually even the Arcananth museums all have um, you know, quiet modern collections tucked away and then um, other communities around Cambridge I mean there's a big project Arbury Open House, Eddington has got work so yeah it's going to really make its mark over the whole of Cambridge So when do the doors actually open to the public again? Um, when, when do they actually come into the building? Ah, well the big open day cutting the ribbon is Saturday the 10th of February um, and I think it's going to be sort of open house and, you know, pa- pandemonium, but very, very jolly, mm-hmm. jolly party. Um, and then there are a few pre-openings which the friends have got, and that's what I've been involved with the week before. Um, so we'll be testing, testing the furniture and the, and, and the wall space. Um, well, it's a tremendously exciting um, refurbishment. Penny Heath, thank you very much indeed for sparing some time to talk to Arts Roundup. It's a pleasure, Simon, as always. 
Outside the building is a row of lights emphasising the message same for everyone and they asked me to remind the world that entry is completely free. The exhibition kicks off next week and needless to say it's a must if you like art in Cambridge. Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. If you've ever enjoyed the art of sending up political buffoonery in the newspapers and magazines, you'll have come across the cartoons, magazine covers and caricatures of Andy Davey that aren't afraid of some humorous mischief and brevity. Andy, an editorial cartoonist, took the chair at Cambridge 105 to explore the life of cartoonists in today's Britain, which seems to be rather like sitting on a melting iceberg. It's a world that's getting smaller and somewhat colder for the trusty scribe in the digital age. Your work has been used by lots of top publications, obviously the the Guardian, the Independent, the Sun, the Scotsman, Private Eye, Punch, the Spectator, the New Statesman and Prospect. And that Times, is, Times as well. Yeah, the Times as well. Yeah. Um, and that's just among others, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, the, uh, you say among others, but actually the field has shrunk considerably over the last few years or last decade or so. The, the field available to cartoonists to get published so um, would you say that it's a, um, a dying art at the moment <laughs> well it's a, this is one of the questions that uh, I mean you know when cartoonists gaggle together to sob in their beer they ask this question regularly and we all think of course that the cartoons are great you know and we can't understand why there's a perception around that cartoons are dying and I, I mean the, I, of course my opening remark was was you know, really underlying what you just said which is that it's a dying art because there aren't so many uh, um, openings in publications available there aren't, there aren't so many publications for one thing um, so you could draw that conclusion but when even when you speak to younger people like journalists and so, they they do appreciate uh, the the power of political cartoons and also, if especially if you speak to people in other countries who, which whose regimes are a little more severe, you know, or even a lot more severe, you you begin to see very quickly that the, the political cartoons are very important. Um, now, um, I mean, is this part of um, basically? Um, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of bashing of the moral media, and obviously, black humour and satire is one thing that you know um, people are less um, tolerant of now. Has there been a kind of retreat amongst the people who generally sort of um, you know um, stir thing, mix things up a bit with uh, cartoons and fun and black humour? Well, I mean, it's not. That is to us, of course, that's anathema. You know, the very idea that you, a world without satire just seems like a world without flowers. You know, yeah, it just seems like a. And of course, it's a very unhealthy world. I mean, the same conditions that that allow satire or encourage satire are the same conditions that that encourage or promote a healthy society. So I think that's very they're very important. Um, but is it is it changing? Um, I, you know, I'm really not sure about whether it's changing or not. It may, may be a cyclical thing. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, um, um, you know, um, being a cartoonist, um, you, you can offend people. And I was reading um, on your website, you, you've wrote a considerable blog about Charlie Hebdo. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, uh, could it even be possibly, at times, um, slightly dangerous to be a cartoonist? Well, it's days? obviously dangerous in Denmark <laughs> <laughs> and France. You know, I mean, the, 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 what happened there was, uh, was extremely shocking. But um, for in, I guess for uh, you know for um, instances like that, which are very uh, very isolated and very rare, you you can't really uh, change your behaviour based. Well, I mean you can be more aware, but you can't really live your life cowed like that because that's exactly what a terrorist will want you to do <laughs> to change your life. Um, how did you become a political cartoonist? Because you started off as a research chemist. Originally. Yeah, well, that's an obvious route, of course, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Obviously, yeah. 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 Um, um, so, uh, did you go to art school? No, and, no, you didn't. No. So, I'd have been an even worse scientist <laughs> if I'd gone to art school. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went through. I was, uh, I was kind of shuffled into science as a kid, and I quite enjoyed it. And, um, and of course, it was encouraged by teachers because it was seen as a very secure kind of career, and I, and I enjoyed it, you know. But I wasn't. I remember. I guess my heart wasn't really, really in it, and I, I was. I'd always harboured a, a dream, actually, as a kid, to be a cartoonist. And I kind of shuffled it away in the, in the back of my mind. And then 
then it re-emerged like in later years. Okay, now you've done um, obviously some great caricatures. You've done some um, cartoon strips. You've done magazine covers and things like that. Um, why do um, things like world news scenarios uh, particularly attract your attention, and what do you get out of it when you attack them or, or, or approach those as subjects? I suppose you know. I, I, I guess the re- the internal reward is one some kind of. Um, you know, kind of satisfaction of moral indignation. You know, you, you can be the you can be the sole dweller of the moral high ground if you publish a, a political cartoon. If you're lucky and your editor doesn't tell you you can't do it, which is another problem. But um, I suppose what you, I suppose what I enjoy about it is the fact that it allows, a, um, it allows an outlet for one's political anger or anger at the situation in the world. You know, and it's a. It's um, it's it's a nice way to express it without really, without going on the streets and you know and beating people up. I mean, it's a you know it's a it's a kind of relatively benign expression form of expression. Now, I was looking at your E Sharp um, magazine covers, which um, I mean, your drawings are, are very um, um, creative, but they're also slightly akin to well, I think they're akin to um, spitting images in terms of yeah. uh, the way that they um, portray people. Um, you're quite cruel with your subject. I don't think you? I am. See, I think I'm quite I'm quite. Uh, quite kind, not kind but I'm not very extreme you know compare it to someone like Gerald Scarf's work and it's very very mild um my uh the, actually t- the E-Sharp was a good example because it was a, uh, the one of the rare examples where European level politicians were depicted the what the, the you know the actual EU level politicians and it's very rare that they actually get depicted anywhere so they were absolutely over overjoyed to be depicted at all because of course the cover of a magazine like that which was distributed in Brussels was a uh, was something to be coveted, you know. Them appearing on a, on anything public was a was a good thing to them, so they didn't care really how they were looked. Uh, and working, um, obviously, you, you've you've had um, cartoons in um, Private Eye um, in the past. Yeah. What's it like to work mm. with um, Private Eye? Obviously, as a key group of satirists yeah. in, in Britain. The, well, I think about uh, Private Eye, and let, I mean, I, I do know a few of them, but you don't you don't work with them mm. because there's a there are two different worlds in published cartoons. There's the world of the editorial cartoon largely, and that largely those people are employed by the papers, or they have a regular slot. But with something like Private Eye or the Weeklies, the the secondary publications like State New Statesman and Spectator and what have you, those are the things. Um, those are the publications where you submit your work speculatively, and you stand or fall every issue on your latest work so you may get none published you may get one published is it, is it like. hard to make ends meet if you're a cartoonist yeah very yeah. increasingly so mm-hmm. i mean it's okay if you have a regular job at a newspaper but there are perhaps mm-hmm. half a dozen in the country yeah. that are worth having at 10 maybe mm-hmm. i mean the it's a ridiculously small field and the rest um aren't, aren't having a good time of it really Un- not unlike other people in the media i mean it, we're no special case we're, in a sense we're very much like journalists or photographers or editors sub-editors you know the the everyone has suffered through this digital revolution in that at that level anyway i mean i, I think that um if if um cartoons through the digital revolution and the internet um end up being kind of um uh, uh, edged out we'll lose those wonderful moments i mean I'm look, looking at that cartoon in private eye when michael gove was involved in some political backbiting and he yeah. fired one of his colleagues and you had this marvelous cartoon where you had his um michael gove's head um next to the person involved involved um and um suddenly he turned into a fish and gulped the, the whole head of the person next to him well you can um, tell. And, 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 and that was just like a marvelous piece of cartoonery it was just well you a, can tell so much of a story in a in cartoon form and you can get away with more because you're not using words it's not libelous in that sense so um you 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 can do much more because of the because of the medium but also the drawn medium is a powerful thing, you know, mm-hmm. and people respond to the drawn image uh, in a stronger way than they than they do to words. You tend to drift off when you're reading, you know, but you see you see a cartoon on top of a sort of pile of words, do and you, get, you think you oh. get a lot of reaction to, to, to the work you do because um, uh, I, I always I find that they have a tremendous impact on me. Cartoons, especially the really funny ones, they just sure. they just have me rolling around yeah. laughing. Yeah, you know? laugh and, laughing. And, and 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 obviously someone like Donald Trump must be an absolute gift to the world of cartoons. Yeah. Um, rather like Thatcher was, yeah. but um, the, these kind of um, uh, uh, unreal, larger-than-life uh, figures who who have amazing amounts of power. I mean, uh, what do you think of Donald Trump, um, especially of 
late. Um, because, um, you know, um, how would you approach him with your black humour, as it were? Um, In a sense, he's almost uh, too much of a caricature to, to get a laugh from, because you don't need any kind of editorial comment on Donald Trump. It just speaks for itself. Mm. You know, I, I saw a photograph the other day of him... Uh, trying, it was on Twitter, trying to form, uh, you know the way we, we, we cross hands at like New Year's Eve and sing Old Lang Syne, you know, there was, there was a bunch of world leaders on one of these uh, G20 uh, meetings, and uh, they were all sort of doing this, and there's Trump in the middle, and he's trying to work out how to connect hands in the right way with these partners, and it's obviously completely flawed him. Hmm. And, you know, you can't satirise that. That's hmm. a perfect moment without any attempt at editorial comment. I mean, it, it, you can do, you can satirise Trump, but it almost seems like kind of, you know, gilding a lily, really. Uh, I've been reading Luke Harding's Collusion, which is basically a, um, yeah. a, um, a, a chapter and verse um, argument to say that um, he's in it up to his neck with the Russians or whatever it is. Um, and um, <clears throat> what I noticed also uh, on a similar point was that um, a lot of the, the people who had been at these meetings said that his attempts to sort of bear hug people <laughs> had all gone disastrously wrong. <laughs> and so his body language doesn't actually uh, work in the political sphere, <laughs> sphere. and I, I thought this was sort of quite hilarious and, and also obviously um, the, the whole idea that he, that some people have accused him of, of having dementia yeah. it also turns him into something of a comical figure in, in many ways. Uh, well I mean he's a tragic comic figure <laughs> isn't he? You know he absolutely he's comical. I mean in a sense I guess we th- you know we never thought well it, it, it's gone incrementally hasn't it? We thought oh Reagan was a laugh and then George Bush came along and now with George Bush looks like a statesman next to, to Trump, but I, I don't. I wasn't aware of that thing about him trying to hug people. I, I mean, it's. It, it, I, I guess he would get it wrong, of course. Does what does he do? Crush them or something? Does he just go too far? He, he crushes them or he treats them um, clumsily. Or yeah. it, it just all sort of seems to backfire. Yeah. And so, he, uh, well, that's what that's what it says in this book. Anyway. Well, I can't imagine he's a man of great emotional intelligence, so he wouldn't be able to sort of assess a situation with his social radar. He would just go in like a bulldozer. <laughs> um, now, what are you working on at the moment? What's attracted your eye uh, today? Actually, Trump. It was, um, well, two things. It was the terrible, how dreadful comment he made about these African countries, you know, and, and Haiti and such like. Um, but that doesn't seem quite, I mean, that, that, that's, ter- that's terrible in its sense. But what, what attracted me more, I think, and what probably attracts me for a cartoon tomorrow is, um, is the um, London Embassy thing, you know, where he seems to have taken a, a strop because he thinks we might be angry at him or not or not sufficiently pleased with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I mean, as I've seen, obviously, you do a, a pretty good Trump. I've, I've seen a Trump on your website. Yeah, um, and, and also a very good um, IDS um, and a very good um, Prince Charles as well. Oh, they're old uh, ones, aren't they? <laughs> I, yeah, IDS was a gift, really, because he looked like a billiard ball with teeth, <laughs> yeah. you know. A stri- uh, and a strange kind of Dickensian figure. Um, uh, and, well, Charles is just a gift, isn't he? You know, the FA Cup, um, given physical form. Um, but caricature. I mean, I, I kind of enjoy caricature, but but only I suppose I enjoy it as a sort of adjunct because it's a it's one skill of cartooning. You know, you need to draw a caricature within a political cartoon. Um, I mean, I used to do a lot of caricatures. I used to do you know used to do even on the spot drawing of caricatures at events and things. But um, I, you know, I did thousands of them, and I, uh, in the end, it just drives you mad. You know? Um, now, obviously, you feel strongly, um, obviously, strongly enough to be a political cartoonist. Um, do you think that um, cartoonery can actually ever really have much power in terms of um, uh, tackling injustices in society? Is that something you think it can ever really do? Well, uh, it, it, in this country, probably not, because we're just too sort of sophisticated or whatever, or, we, or you know, we're, we're too smart, <laughs> too smarty pants. But in other countries, yes, it does, and it really does have an effect. Um, I've spoken recently to a few cartoonists actually who who are facing prison in their respective countries because of the comments they made in their cartoons, and and they really do have an effect to the extent like in the in the um, Arab Spring in various countries where there were demonstrations in the streets, um, the uh, the the demonstrators had appropriated certain strong image cartoons and put them on posters and even made. Um, um, uh, made prints or not prints um, painted like Banksy images on on walls using stencils um, 
so they'd, they'd taken the liberty of, or taken the effort to make a stencil of the cartoon and painted them on, on walls in strategic places. And people understood these images, you know, wordless images. They're the most powerful kind of cartoons, I guess. Uh, so, you know, if they're used in those situations, then I think that's a wonderful demonstration that they are quite powerful things. My thought about how cartoons will, will, will uh, develop over the f- next few years is, if, if the last few years are anything to go by, is that they will probably be more radical but they'll probably be unpaid in a sort of an, uh, an, uh, uh, and drawn by, for want of a better word, amateurs. You know, people who are, well, they are amateurs, they're not paid, but people who who aren't beholden, essentially, to a, a proprietor of a newspaper or, or someone who's going to edit their work. They'll want their work unmediated. And the only real way to do that is, is to work for yourself and not get paid for it. So I think, and it's it's the way that, the media seems to be moving, you know, a more atomized kind of um, bedsit kind of journalism, you know, um, not not the mainstream media, which has suffered, you know, slings and arrows in recent years. Um, but the, I, I guess the real potent stuff is going to come from from outside of that. Great, great stuff. Um, Andy, thank you very much indeed for coming in and talking to me. Thank you, Sam. I can hear a man in the next room having a glass of wine and just realising that he's on the cover of the new magazine on the table. Sorry about that, old boy. You just caught his damnable eye that time. Well, you can visit Andy Davy at andydavy.com. Like me, you may not have been lucky enough to get a ticket to the sell-out choir concert in the dark in the Round Church in January with We Are Sound, but there will be other chances later in the year. In the Dark took full advantage of the 12th century's slightly spooky architecture with little lighting, altering our normal take on choir music by exploiting the dark to make its source less visible and to explore the visual aspects of the church interior in terms of shadows and altered states. In fact, the Green Knight might just have been waiting in the wings. Choir founder Andrea Cockerton came in to talk on being a singer in Cambridge and brought in some freshly recorded sound. With me here is Andrea um, Cockerton, who um, is a woman of many parts, as far as I gather from the little I've heard um, from you so far. Um, I gather that you're um, you're a singer with the Cambridge Choir We Are Sound. Yep, so it's a big musical project that I set up in 2010, and we currently number around 120 singers and anything up to about 20 instrumentalists, and we do some both big and very small gigs in the city. Now, you've been doing a, um, a gig just recently, which um, uh, I, I gather completely sold out which yeah was, the demand's um, been fantastic um, was it called music from the dark or? it's just called in the dark in the dark yeah and, uh, so so what was the basic concept behind doing that well i think people our, our lives are really busy we're inundated with information and sounds and just senses all the time and what i was trying to do was to think about how do people listen when all they're doing is using their sense of hearing and so we set up a concept where we found a beautiful old venue the round church in cambridge and we the model is that we put the sing, the audience into the middle of that round space and in the dark and there's a little bit of ambient light for those people that get a bit claustrophobic but we also give all the audience sleep masks so they can go total immersion and it's really to see how do people hear when they're not using their other senses and also how do they respond when they're not being observed by other people and it's the response has been phenomenal it's been called countercultural people have come out weeping it's it's a real experience um that sounds really interesting because i mean having a look at the video which you showed me a little bit uh, earlier yeah. um you you have uh, the round church which is this wonderful i think originally a, tw- a 12th or 13th century um norman um church yeah. and it has these wonderful round uh, yeah. areas with naves it has um uh, the two uh, the two um uh, parts of the church and mm-hmm. then an old for lovely um, windows and everything mm, else but mm. um, in the dark when it's um, partially lit and what have you yeah. it looks much more mysterious and a yeah. much better setting for music it fe- and it feels very mysterious as, yeah. you can feel as people were walking in it's a uh, oh uh, and actually we found that quite a lot of people both from the group performing and from the people coming as ticket holders hadn't been had lived in Cambridge for donkey's years yeah, yeah, and had yeah. never been inside the building so for them it's a real you know wow this we've got this here and and what a beautiful space it is um yeah i mean and i i I suppose i'm having it as as a city center um uh, um location as well it it makes it very convenient for everybody to go to now that was just the first of several of those wasn't it yeah Yeah. originally we set one date Mm. and we were doing we're doing short gigs short in a dark sound experiences because i think probably too long in the dark might be a little bit too much for the audience so they're 40 minutes maximum and we set up four 
gigs on that first day and they sold out within two days I think so we set up another date for five shows and they sold out in 10 hours and then we've set up two more one for January one for February they sold out in eight hours it's the response has been just <laughs> off the charts really and I think it's because it's something different and because there, there is something wonderful about giving yourself over to that and being totally there for that 30 40 minutes um okay now i mean getting involved in choirs lots of people in cambridge i mean these days um are joining choirs yeah. because um they're getting um a lot out of it yeah. um can you tell me a little bit about um you know why people join mm. um and also how difficult is it to actually learn to sing competently there are, there are a whole range of choirs in the city ranging from community choirs where you have to have no experience at all and where you're probably singing simple tunes mm. through to the obviously the choirs at the university colleges the chapel choirs where it's it's a really high standard and you, and you must be able to read music so i think each choir is going to have its own entry point if you like we sit in the middle so we welcome both people that can read music and can't read music and i, I think also in the in the terms of experience of people coming to us some people have never done anything like this before so they're learning to use their voice at the same time and watching and observing the singers that i've got in the group i can see how a number of them came and they were initially really nervous and their voice was not perhaps as in they weren't in control of it yet and i've seen how they've pro- progressed and it's now much more in their hands and they can use it and put it into places that perhaps they hadn't thought that they would be able to do so it's brilliant to see people progress i think cambridge is, is a fantastic place to sing we've got great buildings there's a lot of musical history a lot of great talents and a lot of variety um, and presumably it's great for meeting new people as well <laughs> it's brilliant yeah. uh, i mean i i personally think that people come for a number of reasons they 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 want to get out of their normal life want to meet some people have some fun want to be challenged and also that sense i think something we work hard in our group is that we purposely do gigs rather than stuffy concerts and it's there's quite a lot of adrenaline so that that is quite addictive i think that that buzz when you get when you've just pulled off a gig with crazy sound and production um, issues and it's all finally come together at the, at the last point and and worked and and then a post-show party so that's for my thing is that's i think all part of it um, i mean I, I had a recent experience um, um when I'm, i went down to um jesus lock to meet some friends um and three separate choirs uh, turned up to sing um just by the spaden beckett pub um to to the public and to the people oh, passing um, on the punts, and, and it was well, absolutely the, wonderful. They were singing on the punts. They, they were singing yeah. on, on the bank, oh, um, on the bank, bank to to people um, passing by and, yeah. and, and 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 people just enjoying the sun and what have you. And we had um, one choir from Russia. Um, we had um, two other choirs from Cambridge, um, and it was a really pleasant experience just having this music, just you know, uh, this beautiful music played out yeah. um, in a public space in Cambridge. Yeah, and uh, of course you do it the other way around. Yeah, so yeah. I was college yeah, here and yeah. i was a choral scholar at yeah. trinity and yeah. we sit we they still do i think we sang then on the punts with the audiences on the bank so the, the other way around and that was uh that was it was it was always a lovely lovely experience um, another experience which i found was uh, going into trinity chapel when the music scholars were practicing yeah um was also an incredibly rewarding experience because yeah. you had those fantastic acoustics um yeah, and you had them playing this this music to a, a wonderfully high standard yeah um and, and getting involved in that seems to me tremendously exciting now what about the people what are they like at we are sounds <laughs> tell me a bit about the we program. are a whole bunch of mavericks mm. uh there there is no one type of person that that comes to us so it's all ages probably from about 25 to about 70 it's we've got a, a very strong chunk of men so there's about 35 men in our group which is quite rare we're really pleased with that uh, we've got teachers we've got uh, academics we've got people that are unemployed we've got people that work in the music industry um people that have been on the west end people that have sung in bands uh and, and on it goes it's just a really interesting collective of of people now have there been any weird and wonderful experiences that people have had just just think stories that have cropped up as a result of taking part in this activity well i know that quite a few bands have sprung out of it so quite a few people have have paired together and set up either you know either small bands or or small acapella singing groups so that kind of stuff comes out just really naturally there's a quite strong social element so i believe all the men went for a christmas curry before christmas and all the women which is about 85 of us are going for a new year curry quite soon so stuff like that comes out of it and then we get asked to do quite quirky 
events, musical and otherwise. It's always there. Um, okay, um, so we're now going to listen to a piece of music from We Are Sound just to get yeah. um, some of the flavour from. Um, is, it, is it called Music in the Dark? Or? So just in the dark, and this is one of the. It's a very quiet, beautiful piece of music that gives a sense of the in the dark gig.
it's a cover, I should say, of a track by Jake Halsby called Howl. First of all, um, um, Andrea, um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, Are you a mum? What do you do? Oh, (laughs) I would love to be a mum, but sadly I'm not. Um, I run in my day, my day job, if you like, my full-time work is something called We Are Sound. And that's a big musical collective in Cambridge of about 120 singers and about 20 instrumentalists. I do a little bit of something else. So I've worked in the business community for about 15 years now. I work with entrepreneurs pitching for funding. So I'm a pitch coach and I still do that. And I really enjoy it, I have to confess. Now, now um, as far as I gather, you are actually um, an organiser of a brand new Cambridge festival, which is possibly going to be opening in the city this summer, yeah. um, which is going to be a really big event. Now, tell <laughs> me about it. So it's called House of Cambridge. And the, mo- the, the strap line, if you like, is a feast of festivals. So for many, many years, I've been wanting to bring a tent to Parker's Peace, actually to stage We Are Sound. But I've realised that for a one-off gig, that's just... It's prohibitively expensive. And so I kind of parked the idea. And then talking with uh, a gentleman called Paul Smith from Cam Creative uh, in the middle of last year, he, he mentioned that there used to be a Cambridge Arts Festival in the 80s. And this was a kind of penny drop moment because I thought, well, actually, I know of quite a few of the festival founders now that have got the Literary Festival and Jazz Festival why don't we try and pull them all together for one week? That, we don't do that. Edinburgh does it brilliantly. But in Cambridge, we're doing our brilliant things independently. So that's the model, is to try and persuade the, the existing festivals in Cambridge and also some creative curators in the city to put some content for one week only, all together in a new festival, the House of Cambridge. So the, the whole idea originated from you, it's your idea? Basically. Well, it was from a conversation with Paul, and he, he really sparked it, And then, the, but the Feast of Festivals absolutely was, was a, well, I know these guys, let's, let's, let's approach them, let's try and do it. Um, now, um, actually, I mean, from, from what I've read from the, um, the, from the limited amount of publicity that's come out of it so yep. far, is that actually things to do with this festival are already starting to take place, with um, taster performances and things like that. Now, who's doing what and where? We are, we're planning lots of different things so there will be announced soon some sunday night music sessions where we're going to try and promote some of local bands in cambridge we are going to be holding some big warm-up events in the lead up to the festival one of which will be at the Brewboard brewery out in harston they're one of our great supporters and we love nick and the rest of the team at, at Brewboard. we've got uh, thirsty on board and we're looking to do some events in their in their summer uh, big garden and so on it goes there's all these ad hoc events that we're we're planning right now so we can't i can't say right on the 2nd of february at 6 p.m yeah. <laughs> we've got this coming yet but it's not it's not far away now the, 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 um, you're going to be inviting um, basically some local artists to perform but there's also talk of a competition involved is, is that right or am i getting that wrong we there, there is so much going on so we're looking at doing a cambridge cake off which will be a competition so food is art that'll be part of it we uh, we've already had a photography competition where lots of people submitted photos of the city to take part and we will be looking at running probably a busking competition as well uh, which may end up in the the winner performing in one of the bigger performing spaces this is going to make um the cambridge experience in the summer even more interesting than it already is basically yeah. um by adding an, another um layer to it all that um, that's exactly the aim it's mm. to kind of big up what we've got mm. and also to welcome to the city what we haven't yet got so uh, we're looking at edinburgh and we're looking at brighton and some of the content they've got there and we will try and invite some of those performers and artists to the city and in terms of we haven't yet spoken to all of the festivals we're we're running as fast as we can we've got more to do but we've got the film festival on board the jazz festival the uh, comedy festival the festival of ideas the science festival the cambridge cocktail weekend and um, the Ahpab Music Festival and the Fringe the Festival the Junction and we're doing a Fringe yeah um, okay now can you take me through a, a few of the key artists who are going to be performing what are they like and what's it like working with them well that is actually a tricky question because we can't confirm these artists although we've got some some absolutely golden ones that we're trying to book until we've got the money to do so so right now as, as we sit today we are in the middle of funding for the festival if you think putting a a 800 capacity antique tent onto four and a half or four thousand square meters of parker's piece that takes a lot of toilets a lot of fencing a lot of stewarding a lot of security we're trying to raise a rather large amount of money and when we get that money we can then book artists but i can tell you the kind of things we're after are um we're looking at benjamin clementine who we would love to bring to the city we are looking at david o'doherty i think in comedy and also another comedian that i can't remember right now um we local 
amazing talent like Neon Moon is definitely going to are definitely going to be involved. We will be we're looking at a group called the Ayub Sisters as well. So it's it's this is our actually conundrum right now. We we've got to get our funding sorted to book those names so that we can guarantee to pay them. And as soon as we've got that, we are on a roll. So what kind of um, uh, what kind of people should consider funding you, and why? <laughs> That's a really good question. We're, we're talking to local businesses. I think we've approached nigh on about 150 so far. It is a golden sponsorship opportunity, mainly because the combined mailing lists of all the festival partners is massive. And there's obviously a visitor tourism angle to this too. So any local businesses wanting to get some profile and that love the arts and would like to have some tickets to come and see us, then we'd, we'd love to talk to local businesses and any high net worth individuals lurking out there that <laughs> support the arts, then we'd love to talk to them now this is going to be i mean for, for you it'll be a really big thing if it's a success because yep. then um that, that's you're going to have your job cut out for you after that aren't you because well, you'll have so much work to do that, that's yeah. that's true and the, th- the important thing to say is not just me so there's a team of about eight of us working on this we're all doing it uh, in our spare time right now flat out as you can imagine we've got eddie barkin who's going to be the production manager and he was the man behind this the folk festival for 23 years and we've got Vicky Fenton, who's dressing the site. And we, who else have we got? Uh, we've got Ellen Downs, who is behind Enchanted Cinema, who's one of our team working with young people. And so on and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of people. And yes, we have got our work cut out for us. It's The plan is long term. This isn't just a one-off event. It's 5, 10, 15 years well, it sounds like an absolutely fabulous idea. Um, and Thanks, uh, I, I wish you all the best of success with it. Um, Andrea Cockerton, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Serving our University City and South Cambridgeshire. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. when it comes to seriously messing about with light artistically there's no one quite so good at organising it to go really large as Alexandra Cagliano director of the Illuminate Cambridge Festival and she's about to throw the high energy switches projecting light artworks onto the city's most impressive buildings once again this month this time with ongoing sponsorship from Panasonic and the help of digital marketing consultant Sukio she's bringing a big name artist to join the local fold from abroad and has a lineup of city centre light installations using light technology developed in Cambridge. Well, the whole idea was actually um, uh, happened because I noticed a, a gap, if you want, something that wasn't there, um, and I taken advantage. I think I, I've taken advantage of uh, of it and bringing uh, a new type of art form into Cambridge, which did not exist before. So the realization that the city. Um, with all its beautiful architecture and magnificent buildings, was absolutely plunged into darkness. Uh, you know, as soon as the sun goes down, and the opportunity there is, there exists to do something truly imaginative and innovative uh, on this spaces really was too too big and too exciting not to think. <laughs> so this year we really up our games in terms of the um, artistic value of the festival we invited some really big names of the uh, in, in this particular branch of the arts so in particular we were delighted to announce that Patrice Warner uh, will be joining us from France from Lyon is one of the um, most widely recognized light projection artists in the world he's worked on he's uh, um, created this uh, specific and unique technique for projecting with colour, um, which happened to be the theme of the 2018 festival as well. And uh, he's worked all over the world in uh, um, illuminating beautiful architecture. So it was a, a natural th- a choice to, to invite him over for uh, the 2018 festival. What, what are the key installations? What are people going to find? Uh, People are going to find installations on Senate House and Gonville and Keys College, onto King's College Chapel. So we we kept the installation into a really easy to find route in the city centre, so that the audience experience is maximised. And uh, is we we have put on light on on some of the most iconic buildings, um, as well as obviously worked with uh, some of the our long term partners, such as the Guildhall and the and the city council, of course. Now, now you're marrying um, light technology mm-hmm. um, and things like energy saving glass and other things like that um, into these um, artworks. Um, what are the products and 
developments of the light technology firms who are showcasing this time around? Yep, so we, we're super proud because as I always said right from the beginning, Illuminate Cambridge is really the intersection of arts and technology coming together on this beautiful platform that is our city. So we're working with uh, high technology equipment and products from the likes of Panasonic. Uh, we have lighting fixture from uh, Philips and a series of other um, incredibly big brands with the newest technology. And we work with um, also with experimental and research groups at the university. So we've got product and, and equipment that are more in a sort of initial experimental phase as well. And that obviously we're, we're, we're dealing in hard times at the moment and lots of art projects um, are having trouble getting hold of funding. What's happened in terms of sponsorship and funding? You've got Panasonic again this year, mm-hmm. haven't you? Uh, we're super excited about uh, Panasonic reconfirming their sponsorship to Illuminate Cambridge, of course. Um, as you said, it has been harder. The The point is really to continue to innovate and uh, find new ways to attract um, sponsors, to attract partners, supporters, and obviously paying audiences as well. <laughs> um, as a partner, um, you're involved as a stakeholder in this project. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do? Um, well, I run a digital marketing, marketing agency called Sukio, um, and so for us to partner with the festival, because what we do is very visual and it's rooted in technology, then it's the perfect kind of collaboration, really. Um, and I first saw Ali talking about it at Cam Creative, um, I don't know how many years ago, five years ago or something, yeah. <laughs> um, when it was the journey of an idea and to watch from the sidelines and see the festival grow and develop to what it is today is just really impressive so uh, we're just really proud to be involved. Well who you're inviting in for the launch because the launch is coming up quite soon isn't it? Well everyone is invited to the launch absolutely the the, the inaugural um, opening ceremony in Market Square is free and open for everyone to join so we really hope that everyone will uh, uh, make the most of it. It starts um, around 7 o'clock in Market Square and at 7.30 the mayor will say a few words and the lights will go on. So what's, what's the message to people this year? Because you, you, you do reshuffle the cards each time around and you have different companies, different uh, messages. So what, what, what's going out at the different locations? Well this year we're very much concentrated, as I said, on, on the theme of colour and celebrating mm-hmm. some, yeah. some key um, uh, important facts. Like for example, uh, 2018 is 345th anniversary of the Newtonian papers, which is an <laughs> extremely exciting thing for Cambridge. Very, very specific, very, very scientific. But if you think about the importance of those papers in, in terms of uh, researching light and everything that meant, you know, um, you know, it's a color, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's a beautiful opportunity and occasion to to celebrate all of those um, uh, those scientific discoveries and uh, and the innovation that comes out of uh, this very city on a regular basis. Tell me about Sukio's role in it. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, just let me know uh, how, how it works. Yeah. Well, we've been a supporter of the festival for. Uh, this is our third year now so we started off just by placing an ad in the program and then last year we sponsored the whale exhibition uh, along with the zoology museum so it's this fabulous whale um, that was projected onto the side of the wall Um, and so yeah we supported that and because it was in partnership with the zoology museum they kindly spoke about us a lot on social media they made some awful whale puns which we joined (laughs) in with as well Um, so because what we do is a lot to do with words copywriting that kind of thing then we you know we quite enjoy that kind of thing Uh, we did get very interested in the way that the um, artist designed this whale in itself so how how she did all the illustrations and how that married up with the um, projection because it's not like you know you don't just get a projection and just you know point at a wall and then walk away Um, and that particularly interests me because so much of what we do it's where um, you know the visuals the arts the creativity meets the actual the the technical side um, which is what I find so interesting and in fact the talk that we're sponsoring the Cambridge Colour Talk will have both of those perspectives so um, a very scientific perspective and then the creativity as well which is personally what I find quite interesting when where, where, where will the Cambridge Colour Talk take place? Well I'm glad you asked it's, yeah. uh, it's at the Cambridge Union on the Saturday so the launch of the festival is the Friday and then this is the, the Saturday And that's all from this month's Arts Roundup 